for preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other communities to the great dishonour of god and offence of others it is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as christmas or the like either by forbearing of labour feasting or any other way upon any such account as aforesaid every such person so offending shall pay for every such offence five shilling as a fine to the colony as recorded by the general court massachusetts bay colony the eleventh of may in the year of our lord sixteen fifty nine at least that's what i hear Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influence the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, the War on Christmas. What is this War on Christmas? When did it start, and where did it come from? Is the history of Christmas as simple as we believe it to be, or is there more to it? Do we really find changes in Christmas tradition so offensive that we feel we are at war to defend it? After the break, we will fill our stockings with Christmas history and cheer and let the Yule Log light our understanding of this controversial topic of the war on Christmas. Howdy, theoriologists. Let's talk about the War on Christmas. In 2005, a War on Christmas resurfaced and took the news media by storm. Seemingly driven by political correctness, or the frustration thereof, many have drawn political lines seeing the omission of the term Christmas in holiday greetings as an assault on the conservative Christian aspects of this holiday season, while other observances such as Hanukkah and Kwanzaa are apparently left unscathed, while Christmas, as most of us would recognize it, is a rather modern rendition. The evolution of the Christmas holiday and, in fact, the festive observance of the winter season entirely, goes back millennia. Theories abound about the specific religious underpinnings of Christmas, as well as the origins of many traditions and iconography of the season, and history shows us that Christmas has been under attack for a long time. In fact, Christmas as we know it may very well be a conspired invention itself to replace the untamed observance that preceded it. Ultimately, we celebrate Christmas and the holiday season as we 
individually have always observed it. And we do find any attempt to change our perspective extremely upsetting. Well, there seems to be some psychology behind Christmas that just might explain it. So let's first jump into the background, like we usually do. What exactly is this war on Christmas? Well, in theory, it's driven by an anti-Christian sentiment, where advertisers, retailers, and government entities such as schools and other organizations uh, have driven a, a secular, primarily left-leaning effort to avoid, discourage, or outright censor the use or mention of the term Christmas, instead promoting generic, non-religious reference to the term holidays. This is ostensibly motivated by an effort to remove the Christian origins and elements from this holiday, in an effort to make it more politically correct. But is there an origin to this? When did that start? As far as I can tell, it started around October of 2005, when a book by author John Gibson titled The War on Christmas hit the shelves, just in time for the holiday season. Gaining attention with a promotion on Fox News, a heated debate was rekindled in America that really has continued to present day. Now that said, we find out that Christmas has been under assault for a lot longer than the last 10 years, and not in the way you might think. But before we get into that, let's, let's cover a brief Cliff Notes version of Christmas history while dispelling a few myths. Now I say Cliff Notes, but... There's quite a bit to cover, we're just going to do it rather quickly. We've all heard the argument that Christmas was simply the hijacking of pagan polytheistic traditions, such as Saturnalia, by the church as they forced conversion upon local populations. December 25th was therefore selected as the birth of Jesus in order to coincide with and supersede the already celebrated winter solstice. This practice of adopting local celebrations allowed for an easier transition to Christianity. Well, that's not really true. At least, it's not nearly so conquest-driven and, and malicious. In fact, Christmas was already being observed in December, and the date was determined through a deductive process that is often referred to as the calculation hypothesis. See, in 221 A.D., Sextus Julius Africanus, a historian of the 2nd century, maintained that Jesus of Nazareth was conceived on March 25th, which the Christian church came to celebrate as the Feast of the Annunciation. With the term of uh, pregnancy being nine months, uh, Africanus held that Jesus was therefore born on December 25th, which the Western Christian church established as Christmas. Now, this thesis is said to be corroborated and, and supported by an interpretation of the Gospel of Luke that, that places the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah on the observance of Yom Kippur. That occurs around October. Now, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. As the, 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 the quote says, as, quote, the worshipers were praying outside of the temple and not within, for only the priest could enter the temple at this time to conduct the proper rituals, end quote. Because Jesus was six months younger than his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus, therefore, was conceived in March, 
if John was conceived in in uh, October and born in late December. So, with this determination, it seems that many began observing and celebrating what became known as the Feast of Christmas. Now, in parallel, the Roman observance of Saturnalia, which was held in the early weeks of December, was also evolving in the 3rd century and ultimately superseded in 274 AD when Emperor Aurelian established the festival of Sol Invictus, which means the unconquered sun, which was a deity that had gained chief deity status in the Roman Empire. Now, there is a debate as to whether the festival of Christmas inspired the festival of Sol Invictus or the other way around. In reality, they probably influenced each other and were celebrated in parallel by their respective adherents. Moving forward, in the 4th century, under the rule of Constantine, Christianity began spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Though initially encouraged to abandon pagan practices, populations that were converting to Christianity found it comfortable to incorporate ancient traditions into the new observances of, of Christian holy celebrations, such as the festival of Christmas, which itself was just a secondary holiday to the more important celebrations such as Easter. But by the 6th century, the festival of Christmas was expanded to really a full holy season, beginning with Advent, the 40 days leading up to Christmas, which itself had adopted many of the Saturnalia traditions, and ending with Christmas tide leading up to Epiphany. It was this more than month-long observance that incorporated many winter season traditions from the Germanic cultures, such as the Norse and the Anglo-Saxon, in context to Christianity. All this led up to the fact that by the High Middle Ages, Christmas really had gained high prominence and observed as a more raucous, revelrous, carnival-like celebration. In fact, Christmas was almost out of control. And this is where we get into the real war on Christmas. Except this war against Christmas came from within. Now this comes from an article uh, in, the New York Time, in, a, in the New York Times in December of 2012 titled The Puritan War on Christmas. See, in the early 17th century in England, the Christmas season was really not so different from what it is today. I mean, churches and other buildings were decorated with holly and ivy, gifts were exchanged, and charity was distributed amongst the poor. Also, much like it is today, it was a period of carousing and merriment. The weeks around Christmas were celebrated with feasting, drinking, singing, and games. Mummers would blacken their faces and dress up in costume often in the clothes of the opposite sex, to perform plays in the streets or in homes. Carolers, too, would sing door to door as well as in the home. Wealthy lords threw open their manners, inviting local peasants and villagers into uh, and inside to, to gorge on food and drink. Groups of young men, called wassailers, would march in and demand to be feasted or given gifts of money in exchange for their good wishes and songs. The Puritans, though, detested these sorts of activities, grumbling that Christmas was observed with more revelry than piety. The article goes on to say, Worse, they contended that there was no scriptural warrant for the celebration of Jesus' birth, 
Puritans argued that Christmas represented nothing more than a thin Christian veneer slapped on a pagan celebration, which is not really that incorrect, considering what we discussed before. Going on, believing in the holiday was superstitious at best, and heretical at worst, was an often, uh, often made argument. When the Puritans rebelled against King Charles I, inciting the English Revolution, the popular celebration of Christmas was on their hit list. Victorious against the king. In 1647, the Puritan government actually canceled Christmas. Canceled Christmas. Not only were traditional expressions of merriment strictly forbidden, but shops were also ordered to stay open. Churches were shut down and ministers arrested for preaching on Christmas Day. The Puritans then who came to America naturally shared these sentiments. And as the Massachusetts minister, Increase Mather, explained in 1687, Christmas was observed on December 25th not because Christ was born in that month, but because the heathens' Saturnalia was at the time kept in Rome, and they were willing to have those pagan holidays metamorphosed into Christian ones. So naturally, official suppression of Christmas was foundational to the godly colonies in New England. In fact, on their first Christmas in the New World, the pilgrims at Plymouth Colony celebrated the holiday really not at all. Instead, they worked in the fields. One year, the colony's governor, William Bradford, yelled at visitors to the colony who were unaware that Christmas was celebrated more really in, in its absence than in the commemoration. And they were taking the day off. He found them in the street playing openly, <laughs> some pitching the ball and some at a, a game called stool ball and other such sports. After that incident, no one again tried to take off work for Christmas in the colony. The real clincher was that in the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay Colony went a step further and actually outlawed the celebration of Christmas from 1659 to 1681. Outlawed Christmas. Anyone caught celebrating Christmas in the colony would be fined five shillings. So there you go. That's really the first real war on Christmas. And it's a lot more severe than the one we seem to be facing now. But let's add to that. Let's think about Christmas as it is now. Modern day Christmas. What we think of with Christmas. Now, at this point, you're thinking, where's the conspiracy? I mean, it certainly sounds like I'm going to spend this entire episode denouncing any perception of a modern war on Christmas. But quite the contrary. Actually, if there is any legitimacy to a conspired attack on Christmas, it began in the early 1800s during a transformative time in New York City. The efforts of three members of New York's high society, Clement Clark Moore, Washington Irving, and Jonathan Pintard culminated into the publication of Moore's 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, and it changed Christmas forever. You know the poem as most of us do, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." I think it's best if we remember these words before we continue our discussion. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, 
in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar-plums danced in their heads, and Mamma in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap, when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver so lively and quick i knew in a moment it must be saint nick more rapid than eagles his coursers they came and he whistled and shouted and called them by name now dasher now dancer now prancer and vixen on comet on cupid on donder and blitzen to the top of the porch to the top of the wall now dash away dash away dash away all as dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky so up to the housetop the coursers they flew with the sleigh full of toys and saint nicholas too and then in a twinkling i heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof as i drew in my hand and was turning around down the chimney saint nicholas came with a bound he was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled! His dimples, how merry! His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. All right. Moore's poem seems to reflect the common practice and traditions of Christmas. But, in fact, he was inventing a new tradition, almost whole cloth. As we discussed earlier, pre-modern Christmas was a seasonal celebration, stretching through much of the winter. Europeans used the holiday to play with periods of misrule, during which the normal rules of acceptable behavior relaxed or inverted social hierarchies were temporarily suspended or inverted for a time of carnival or enjoyment of the flesh and dressed as animals the revelers might elect a child their bishop or assemble the lords of misrule to preside over the festival holidays were a period of blowing off steam having fun and relaxing the standard social and political tensions that ruled their world with an iron fist in contrast much of post-colonial america didn't engage in celebrations like this 
really due to the influence of the Puritan abolishment of Christmas in the past. It was actually pretty tame. Now, Moore was a poet, and Pintard was a reformer, a, a lover of folk culture, and, and they recognized the value and function purpose of celebrations the like which were held in Old World Europe. Both men grasped something which Washington Irving hinted at in his sketchbook stories. If you mythologize New York's old Dutch culture in just the right ways, you could invent new traditions all New Yorkers could adopt of their own free will as, as part of their local identity. Irving's sketchbook stories introduced the familiar version of Santa, presented as the patron saint of New Amsterdam. What the conspirators needed really was a way people could celebrate the winter season at home with their families without the ability to so quickly shake themselves into a disruptive mob. Pintard provided the methods of celebration, Irving provided the respectable, likable holiday hero, and more, well, he just put it all into verse. So there you have it, a long yet extremely condensed history of Christmas and how it became what it is today. Now, it's a longer background than most of our topics, and I had fun reading Twice the Night Before Christmas, but it's important to understand this long historical memory behind many of our Christmas traditions, as well as the awareness of consternation that Christmas has caused long before a book was published drawing political lines around Christmas. I mean, seriously, the Puritans really hated Christmas. So what's the theoryology? I mean, okay, so that was a fun and festive summary of the war on Christmas. And there is about 400 years worth of discussion and debate to review if you really want to. The links are below in the, in the show notes. But let's get to the real issue. Why does this topic fascinate us? Why do we care? Well, most of us don't really worry about a war on Christmas. Those of us that observe Christmas from a Christian perspective don't go around tearing down happy holidays banners or worrying that the season is controlled as a capitalist plot. And those of us that approach Christmas from a secular perspective don't go around knocking down nativity scenes or, or getting offended at being invited to Christmas Eve services. Yes, both instances happen. I'm not denying that, but, but not that often. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't even make the news. At most, many mainstream Christian religions in the U.S., which, if you read anything, will, you'll see referred to inevitably as fundamentalists in most of those articles, simply downplay the festive Santa Claus commercialism aspect of, of the Christmas season, focusing more on the biblical topic, while the more secular population simply enjoys the season, the decorations, shopping, family time, and, and giving. Either way, it's a season of charity, of family, of giving to others, old favorites, and new beginnings. In fact, most people simply focus on observing the holiday in their own way. And that is really the theoriology. Now, as explained by Janelle DeWeird in her December 2017 article on Medium.com, quote, Humans are creatures of habit. And they tend to hold on to things that are familiar and easy. Our brains are wired to use cognitive biases to move with ease through life. 
The holiday season is no exception. Ignoring the fascinating history behind Christmas in all its many iterations and focusing on the current mainstream forms of the Christmas holiday, the war on Christmas is, at its core, a war that we each individually think Christmas should be, based on our experiences, beliefs, and traditions. So why does it fascinate us? I mean, all right, I can hear you now. There you go, Ryan. Now you're going to tell us there's some psychology behind Christmas, right? (laughs) Actually, yes. Again, we will let Janelle break this down for us. In her article, she eloquently and beautifully breaks this down into some key areas. One, tradition. Two, nostalgia. Three, generosity. And finally, good old-fashioned escapism. First, let's talk about that tradition. The article points to research done within social psychology that found a combination of reasons behind the creation and continuation of traditions, that of social learning and punishment avoidance. To understand the social learning aspect, essentially, we tend to look at others to gauge the most appropriate way to act in situations. You see this in children. And it continues on. And and this herd-like behavior becomes the underlying driver or cognitive bias behind our processes in life. This social learning mechanism helps us to avoid acting in a way that goes against the self-image we want uh, for ourselves in respect to others. But the other half of tradition is the more interesting part. Why do we continue traditions? And And why do we resist change to or the stopping of a tradition? Well, research attributes this to a desire to avoid the threat of punishment. Sounds harsh, but we don't want to stop traditions because we really don't know what the consequences will be. We want to remain consistent and continue doing things the way we've always done them. We use this consistency in everyday life to make decision-making easier. It's easier to fall back on what we've done our whole lives rather than to risk something uh, unknown, which can help us avoid disappointment or embarrassment. You know, with tradition in mind, it's easy to see how folks that have always used Merry Christmas as the appropriate greeting this time of year would find Happy Holidays as an unwelcome inconsistency to their learned behavior. Now next, let's look at nostalgia. Because we can talk about tradition and the idea of of social learning and wanting to continue things. But why is that such a driving factor? Well, nostalgia has a lot to do with it. We love nostalgia. We crave it, and we seek it out. We do so because it makes us more optimistic of the future. The article points out that reflecting on positive past experience both induces more social connectedness and increases self-esteem. These reactions lead to more positive evaluations of the future. So, why is the Christmas season so darn nostalgic? We are surrounded this time of year by some serious nostalgia-inducing factors, scents, and music. Every holiday has unique and iconic aspects to them. There's no doubt. But Christmas has collected more than its fair share of aromas, songs, jingles, and sound effects, pretty much than any other holiday. Now, I'll tip my hat to you, Halloween, 
you are a close second. Studies have found that consumers will spend more time in stores with seasonal environments of smells and music more than other stores without and, and since have been shown to elicit and attract and, and have an attractive effect. So what does this mean to the war on Christmas? Well, let's look at a very current example. The song Baby It's Cold Outside has had to go on the defense as of late because of changes to social norms and interpretations. The song, written in 1944, though not specifically a Christmas song, and actually no holiday is even mentioned at all, by the way, has become regarded as such because of the winter theme and its popularity during this time of the year. I mean, it's been a part of Christmas for 70 years. I mean, I performed it in high school. It brings back memories, good ones, you know, fun memories. The news that it was pulled by several radio stations from the seasonal playlist not only alters that consistency of tradition that we discussed earlier, but negatively impacts our mood and perceptions of time. Being told that a nostalgic trigger is suddenly unacceptable and offensive darkens the perceptions of experience around that are triggered by the song. Okay, so now let's look at generosity. Yep, I mean, it's gift-giving time. And yes, gifts are a key driver of the season. Even though the accusation is that it's driven by a commercial, profitable objective, the idea resonates with us. We don't go shopping because the stores tell us to. In fact, we are happier spending money on gifts for others rather than spending on ourselves. <laughs> now, you know, before you, you tell yourself that you completely disagree with that crazy idea, DeWeird explains in her article that generosity doesn't only result in appreciation from the, from the person receiving the gift, but it also impacts their self-esteem, I mean, happiness, and, and positive view of the world. So, good stuff all around. And guess what? It's good for the giver, too. This is due to the concept of reciprocity. Reciprocity is the need to return the favor when someone does something for you. There seems to be a, a human obligation to give, receive, and, and repay uh, a present, in, in, and, and it's present in virtually all cultures. I mean, it, it's a part of us. We are built to give and receive. Sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? So, when you find yourself getting frustrated with every commercial, advertisement, and billboard telling you to go shopping, drive around town, burn up gas money, and check your doorstep every day for package deliveries, just realize that it's not a sinister conspiracy. Well, okay, it sort of is, but it works because you want it to. Maybe retailers take advantage of the spirit of generosity. So don't go overboard, and you will find that the tradition of gift-giving makes you happier. So finally, we get to escapism. This is actually probably the most pronounced aspect of this Christmas psychology that inspires suspicions of a war on Christmas. The season provides a much-needed break from real life. How? Well, as DeWeird goes on to explain... Stories play an important role in society for a reason. They are a prime method of sharing knowledge and entertainment. Holiday stories, and this includes all holidays celebrated during this season, play prominent, value-driven roles in their respective cultures. 
I mean, the most popular holiday stories generally, uh, generally represent the values of this time of year, commonly featuring themes such as kindness, charity, gratitude, love, and hope. Because of the persuasive nature of stories, these themes are then often reflected in the audience. This is actually due to a process called transportation, which is a, a psychological process that describes how submerging into a story influences individuals uh, and their attitudes, their intentions, and their behaviors. So, whether you are learning age-old religious traditions such as Christmas and Hanukkah, attending or attending plays and pageants, uh, visiting Christmas villages, or just settling in with family to watch holiday movies, new and old. And I'm especially talking to those of you that have already recorded the entire Hallmark Channel Christmas lineup and have it playing on repeat. You are allowing yourself to submerge into the season. This subconsciously drives you to reenact those same values. The result is the first three aspects of tradition, nostalgia, and, and especially generosity. That war on Christmas? Well, any concept that snaps you out of this transportation, this escape into the season, well, it has a negative effect psychologically. It's something of, you know, it's something we're all cognizant of, maybe subconsciously. So there you go. I, that's our theoriology. Now, normally we would get into the endurance test, but I don't think it's necessary. It's Christmas. You know, it's been around forever. And I don't want to ever think of it not going out of the public imagination. War on Christmas or no. So there you have it, right? The psychology of Christmas. The idea of a war on Christmas, it, it resonates with us because Christmas is a very personal and influential experience that reflects a, a cultural memory built upon for 18 centuries. Now, I want to give all the credit for this insightful perspective to Janelle DeWeird in her article on Medium.com. So much of the online discussion that I found elsewhere, it centers on the histories of the holiday and the social reactions to the changes, trying to argue one way or the other. But this article did an excellent job of breaking down why the issue has teeth. I mean, funny enough, the article was written from a marketing and advertising perspective in order to better understand holiday shoppers. I mean, go figure. But of course, we still have the question, is there really a war on Christmas? Well, yes, in a sense. Someone always seems to be trying to change the focus. You know, while each culture, society, and community that observes the Christmas holiday do share some common elements of the season, the specific traditions, nostalgic elements, and stories vary between them and, and differ at a community, family, and even individual level. Yes, there may be some commercial drivers behind a business's decision to hang happy holiday banners instead of Merry Christmas or a religious or secular motivation for an institution, business, or media outlet to push one perspective or the other. But this is more likely driven by the decision makers, the, those individuals, and their personal perspectives on Christmas. Ultimately, 
individuals are trying to maintain the traditions of the season that are most similar to their own. They are trying to capture the nostalgia of their own memories. And sometimes that simply doesn't match our own memories and staple traditions. Of course, this contradiction then attacks that concept of generosity and reciprocity because each side attempting to share their joy of the season does not have the desired effect. So, you know, with that, remember, Christmas has evolved. Christmas and the winter season has always included a celebration of Jesus' birth. And Christmas and this winter season has always included the non-Christian traditions of revelry, mischief, and excessive merriment. Likewise, Christmas has always been under attack from both sides. And by its very nature, it will always be a subject of consternation in the separation of church and state debate. There will always be an ideological war on Christmas because it is so special to us individually. It's always been less of a conspiracy and more of a majority rule situation. Fortunately for us, the modern-day Christmas seems capable of accommodating all of us. So, make some hot chocolate, tell some Christmas stories with family, share a gift or two, and instead of worrying about how Christmas is observed by everyone else, focus on why Christmas matters to you. And as for me, I'm going to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Season's Greetings, and a very Happy New Year. Okay, that's all for today. In fact, that's all for 2018. It's time to spend some time with the family for Christmas and use the break to plan and research for future topics. I want to give a heartfelt thank you to all of you great listeners that have discovered conspiracy theology this year. I started this podcast because I like talking about all these topics, and I hoped that others might enjoy a fresh perspective as well. As we move into next year, there's still a huge list of conspiracies, of events, and, and alternative beliefs out there to explore. So I'll be back in January with new episodes and hopefully some new aspects to the show. So with that in mind, please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. And always links to all the references I used are included in the show notes. If you have anything on this show, or past episodes, or ideas for future topics for next year, contact me via email at contact at conspiracytheology.com. Join the Facebook group. Talk with us that way. Find me on Twitter, at TheriologyPod, or just recommend the show to others. The more attention, the better. All of the info can be found at the show's website, conspiracytheology.com, including how to support the podcast on Patreon. Now, I know I haven't talked about Patreon much, and there's not much on there yet, uh, but that is definitely a way to support the show, and beginning next year, we're going to start getting a ton of extra fun content on Patreon, including a, 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 a stream on there, a Patreon-exclusive show called Expanded Theriology. I have lots of fun ideas for that, so if you enjoy this show, definitely jump over to Patreon and sign up and become a supporter it's it's the way for me to to jump on the show and fund it for growth so that we can have more topics um you know and and more things to do and i can spend more and more time on research and hopefully not 
you know, I have no desire to load up this show with, with a bunch of advertising, at least for a while. Now, lest I forget, this music is by Adam Henry Garcia. Now, I've never talked about that, but Adam was very kind early on when I first started coming up with the idea of the show. I came across some of his songs, and I knew that they would be perfect intro music. Great feel for this show, and he was kind enough to let me use it. Awesome. So if you like what you hear at the beginning and ends of the show, go listen to Adam's stuff. You can find more of his music at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. It's well worth it. So, as always, I'll see you again next time when we will tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. Until then, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.